there's a, a common uh, conception of Jesus out in the realm of pop culture that he is a teacher of love and inclusivity. Love and inclusivity, and to some extent, that reputation is true. Like, um, Jesus was someone who was forming a people from every, every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jewish and unJewish alike, which makes him someone who is inclusive. And, uh, and he was someone who taught the greatest command, that is the, the central ethic of a Christian life, is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. So in a sense, in fact, Jesus was a teacher of inclusivity and also of love. But in his teaching, he doesn't leave his teaching on love out there in the clouds in generalities or ambiguities, but he, he brings his teaching into the, like, the marrow of human life. Like he deals with the human heart in a very straightforward, explicit way. And if you have been following along, you know that he did that last time we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. He dealt with an issue that every single human being struggles with, and that is anger and how anger can turn to bitterness and hatred and how it is um, principally no different than murder. So he, he deals, kind of just slices into the heart with the sword of his word. This morning's one of those things. It's the second of his antitheses um, where he's going to do the same thing. He's going he's to teach in a way that's going to address us at the core of our being um, uh, in a topic that some people don't want to talk about, others want to talk about, for some find it embarrassing. Um, and that is the topic of our um, sexuality and our sexual desire. Now, if you're, like I said, just visiting this morning and you're thinking, what kind of church service did I just come into? I just want to tell you, this is, this is what we do. We're committed to going sequentially through the scripture, which means you go paragraph after paragraph. Now, it would be nice when you get to the difficult or embarrassing topics just to skip those. But then we would avoid a teaching of Jesus that really addresses us where we are. And so I believe we have a... Um, a divine responsibility to like, okay, what does he teach on this area of sexuality and, and sexual desire? Now, having said that, I know it's going to be uncomfortable, especially for your junior hires out there. Um, there are a few and maybe high schoolers, but let's just acknowledge that it might be a little awkward at first. Um, but then more importantly, let's just hear what does Jesus have to say to his church, to his disciples? That's, that's, uh, that's an important word. And given the context in which we live, I don't have to tell you that things have changed a lot. Um, the whole idea of sexuality, sexual identity, sexual orientation. I'm going to use that word probably a lot in the intro with the word sex in it. Sorry, junior hires. Um, is, is, is controversial. It's charged in this open culture that we live in. Um, I'm, I'm not very old um, compared to some of you and old compared to some of the other you, you know. But I have felt it. I have felt it in my lifetime, this change, this massive sweeping change that is unprecedented in history. Um, some of you know the author Al Mohler. He's the president of Southern Seminary. He is a historian, a theologian, and, um, and a, just a brilliant leader. He's been cited by New York Times. He's just one of those guys who's a committed um, uh, scholar of Christianity. He wrote this. He said, we look out on the horizon around us and realize that our culture has been radically changed. In this case, the storm is a vast moral, and in the context of this book, and this book is, if this is an, it, it's an, I can't commend the book enough to you. It's a great book. It's not very long either. 
um, vast moral as in sexual revolution, and that revolution is not even close to its conclusion. In fact, there will likely be no conclusion to the moral revolution within our lifetimes or the lifetimes of our children and great-grandchildren. In other words, he sees this trajectory of change, especially in the area of sexual identity and sexuality, continuing to go in a particular trajectory for a couple generations. We are now witnesses to a revolution that is sweeping away a sexual morality and a definition of marriage that has existed for thousands of years. Now some, perhaps many, maybe even most in our culture, would applaud this, pro- this, this change. They would applaud it as, as freedom from suppression or oppression of people finally becoming who they really are. Um, some have even suggested that Jesus would affirm and be a part of this process of change. And to say otherwise um, would cause you to be an object of scorn or, or antagonism. The question for us as disciples living in the 21st century, it's not by accident that God has placed us here in this time where this change is happening so swiftly, is how, how, how do we as disciples of Jesus who believe in the Bible, how do we disciples of Jesus, how, how do we deal with this whole issue of our sexuality and sexual desire? How are we supposed to understand it? And that's where this, this, this teaching of Jesus comes in. Like I said, he, he deals with life at its roots. And here we are once again, him dealing not only with anger, the first part, but now he's going to deal with this whole idea of sexual desire at its roots. And his teaching is direct, it's explicit, and it's intense. This is what he says, first part. He says, you have heard that it was said, and here he's quoting Exodus 20, verse 14, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now let me pause and say something that needs to be said. For many, the topic of sexuality or sexual expression or experience is an embarrassing topic you don't want to talk about. My parents never wanted to talk about it with us as kids. It was just kind of an, almost like it was a negative. We have to recognize and rediscover as, as God's people that like, he gave our sexuality and sexual expression and the gift uh, as, as, as a design. It's a, it's a precious gift that he's given to humanity, the God is, who is artistic, who is creative, who is a God who takes pleasure, gave us such an amazing gift that it's not to be an object of embarrassment or somehow thought of as negative. I mean, God devoted an entire book in the Bible to the whole topic of celebrating marital and, dare I say, erotic love, the Song of Solomon. I mean, you... You figure out what a cluster of grapes is in that book, and you're going to blush. <laughs> Just saying. It's in there. God's not ashamed of it, and you shouldn't be either. So it needs to be said. So Jesus, when, in what he says here, I probably way distracted you by it. What is a cluster of grapes? <laughs> Jesus is not taking aim or issue with the gift of sexuality or sexual desire. Rather, he is taking aim at the perversion of the gift. All right? That's what he's doing. 
And here he tells us in this first part, he quotes his Old Testament, um, the word of his father, you shall not commit adultery. And there, in that quotation, he tells it that God has placed a, a boundary. Like, just think of it as a fence of, of, of sexual expression and experience. And it's within the context of marriage, which is why it says, you shall not commit adultery. That's adultery takes place within the confines of a marriage, or actually outside the confines of a marriage. Now, just to be clear... On the negative, it means don't commit adultery. On the positive, it means remain faithful within the context of marriage sexually, right? That's what it means. And just to sum up the the Bible's um, sexual morality in one sentence, it's abstinence prior to marriage and then fidelity sexually after and within marriage. That's it. It's been that way for thousands of years within the Jewish realm and Christian realm. Now, I realize that sounds obsolete and archaic. Like, who believes that anymore? But let's just pause and recognize that that has been the standing understanding of Scripture for thousands of years. Abstinence prior or outside of marriage and fidelity after and within marriage. That's that's the... Defense, and just think of it as offense. Offense. This is the this is the framework in God in which God said, "This is where you're full and free to experience this gift that I gave you within the confines of marriage." And it makes sense. We have no idea just how powerful it is, what it does to the soul, what it does to two human beings, which is why God has secured it in this thing called covenant of marriage. You know, that adds security so that you can self-disclose without fear of being abandoned, which today when you operate or engage outside the fence, you're in danger of not only making yourself vulnerable, but losing one's own sense of self-worth as someone created in the image of God. So he, he created these, this framework, this fence of marriage in which there is the freedom of this experience, this gift called um, sexual desire and expression. That's, that's the fence that God has placed for us, and I believe it's for our good. I believe it's for our joy. And to go outside the fence actually leads to a diminishment of joy and shame. So that's the, the fence. Now, the people that Jesus is speaking to, and let, let me just ask this question. Because we're in a time where people are changing the location of the fence, they're, they're taking out the fence posts, and they're putting it somewhere else. And one of those new fences, and it's not really a new fence, it's just a, a different fence, is that as long as two people are, people are mutually consenting, then it's not only permissible, but at some level desirable. And that is the, the new fence. And if you cross that, that mutual consent, well, then you cross a moral boundary, hence the hashtag me too. The question is, like, who has authority to move the fences? Who has the authority to uproot those posts and change them? And believers for thousands of years have said, the only person who has the authority to move a moral boundary line is the author and the creator himself. 
And, and we're in a time in which people are changing the fence lines, which leads to a real important question for us as believers. Where do I believe the fence should be? And who's the authoritative one to set that boundary? So, and here, Jesus says it's within the context of, of marriage. That's where the fence is. Now, some who are listening to Jesus would have thought, well, I'm, I'm good on this one, right? I haven't committed the physical act of, you know, cheating on my wife, the physical act of adultery. But Jesus is pursuing and calling disciples who have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees who were committed to external conformity to standards, but inwardly, not so much. And so he presses into the heart, as you know Jesus does. And he says, but I say to you, it's, it's not just about the outward act. It's that. But it's about what's inside. He says, I say, this is an authoritative statement. This is the true intent of the seventh commandment. That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. In principle, the compulsion and the act are no different in God's eyes. R.T. France um, defines lustful intent as the deliberate harboring of a desire for an illicit relationship. That may express itself in fantasizing. It may express itself in flirting, thinking about somebody too often, um, steering your desires towards meeting at the right place at the wrong time. Now Jesus gets down to the fact that it's really it's about your heart, disciple. Like this is where the, the battle zone is. It's, it's, it's in here. It's in your soul. And this is where the Christian does his work by the, by the Holy Spirit is being able to say, no, not only am I not going to give myself to the act, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to proceed down the path in my heart. It's, this is where the battle is, is, is in the soul. Is I'm, when I see this emerging in my affections, in my heart, I am going to do something about it. I am going to confess it to the Lord. I am not going to allow this to pollute my marriage or my life. And this, by the way, doesn't just apply to married people. That second part applies to everybody. Everybody in this room, including myself. So this is, the, this is the, like the God-ordained limitation he has placed around our sexuality and sexual desire. All right? I hope that part's clear. And Jesus calls it. It's like, listen, if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to start here. It's here, but it's also in here. He goes on to give like a radical treatment right, in the next couple of verses. Jesus is not nonchalant about this whole ish issue of lust of the heart. He goes on to say, listen, and he's speaking to you, he's speaking to me, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. This is like graphic. Right? It is. Graphic, vivid language. Right eye, right hand. Oftentimes in the scripture, when you find language of, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that is a place of honor. It is a place of supremacy. 
we, most of us in this world, except for my dad and a few others, are right-handed people, which means this is your strong arm, and typically this is also your dominant eye. Well, some might debate me on that, but that's the idea, right? The idea is that in your eye is an instrument of perception, and your hand is an instrument of action. And what he's saying here is he's like, listen, these, these, these important valued organs that God has given to you for perception and action, if they lead you down the wrong path, yank it out and amputate it. Now, if, like, if you're just visiting, you're probably thinking, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Let me just say that very, 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 very few people in the history of the church and interpretation have ever understood this to be literal. And it makes sense. If you pluck out one eye, you still got another one. She's still beautiful. Now I'm still lusting because I got a left one. I pulled that out too. You got it? This, his point is not self-mutilation. Jesus' point is that the disciple has to deal with this decisively, definitively, and radically. Not that. That's what it communicates. Decisively, definitively, and radically. We don't play around with it. It's not like a little hobby. It's, no, I, it, Paul would use the word mortify, which means to kill. That's our approach. That's our mentality. What does that mean if it's not literal but figuratively? This is, I think, some, it could mean a lot of things for different people. If you're someone who finds yourself going down the wrong path of lust or deliberate harboring of a thought about somebody else other than your wife, happens through social media, like it, it is a place of vulnerability where you find yourself stumbling, then I think Jesus would say you need to deal with this definitively, decisively, and radically. Perhaps, let me delete your account. And I know people who have done just that because they're that radical in their approach to sexual purity. Listen, if that's you, not Facebook and, and Instagram, it's not a problem for everybody. For some, the pictures and those kinds of things, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a vulnerability. And if that's you, well, cut it off, man. We, we survived thousands of years without Facebook. We'll survive 10,000 more without it. But it's, it's that kind of, it might be painful to not know what, what are Larry and Shirley doing today? <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is it's better for you to just cut it off. If, uh, if it's the internet for you, I realize most of our jobs require us access to the internet. We'll download the whole covenant eyes and put it on your put it on your computer and put it on your devices. I'll tell you, this thing has access to more temptation than my father faced in a lifetime. Right here. To help. If it's uh if it's a group of friends that lead you down the wrong path and makes you want to step outside those fence lines, either in your heart or in your action, it's hard. Maybe time to like, I can't have these friends around anymore because my, my soul is more important than my friendships. Or if it's romance novels that take you in a bad direction, pick up some Francine Rivers or John Grisham, right? Move in a direction that's not going to create a problem for you. And if it's one of those things you've battled with your whole life and it's become a deep-seated addiction, 
then there are people who are committed to helping walk you through it because it's that important. I need to talk to somebody about it. We had a, a weeks-long seminar for our guys just to hammer that out. It's like that important. And that's dealing with it radically, decisively, and definitively. That's how Jesus would have us deal with it. That way. Which brings us to the motive, right? It's not hard to get your mind around the first two. Like God has set for us a framework in which to um, express our sexuality, and that is, is marriage. And he meant it for our good, our enrichment, and a protection of marital love. And can understand how it goes to the heart and the radical treatment of it. But how? This is something everybody in here at some level, at some degree, at some time struggles with. How? Here I want to get down to the motivation. This, in my opinion, this is the most important part of the message. Maybe. On the one hand, you have to understand that Jesus' teaching presupposes that God has given us a new heart. That his spirit has sprouted new life in us. In our dead souls, he's, he's brought something to life called the new birth, called new creation, the spirit indwelling. And that life, among other things, actually wants to obey the Lord. It wants to. To a person who hasn't had that happen, they're just an unbelieving person. This teaching is oppressive. It seems so suffocating to a person. Like, why can't I just be myself and live outside the fences. But to the heart that's been changed by the grace and the love of God, there is this want. Like, I, I want to live within the fence. I may not do well all the time, but I want to live within the fences that God has given me because he loves me and because he loves my spouse. But that want, that want is fed by truth, motivational truth. So let me offer two motivating factors that help us or should help us. The first one has to do with consequences or fear. Twice, Jesus uses the word for. This is a, a motivational explanation as to why you should amputate and pull out. Let us deal with things decisively and radically. For, it's way better that you lose one of your members than your whole body is cast into, and here's, he uses the word, which Christians want to apologize about. But Jesus says the word hell more than he says heaven. For him, it's a reality. And for us, it should be a reality. Like, this is a place of separation, a place of suffering, a place of banishment, a separation from everything good. There is no party in heaven, or in hell, excuse me. That would imply community, and there is no community in hell. Twice, he says it again. For it is better that you lose one of your members. It's like, these are the consequences. It's like, at the end of the day, if you want to just, just live outside the boundaries of the fences, just do what you want to do, Live how you want to do, uh, live. Express yourself how you want to express yourself. Well, at the end of the day, it's not only going to damage you inwardly, it's going to damage you eternally. That's, that's what he's saying. It's like, and I know some people are maybe even here who are like, well, there's the church again trying to scare people. Listen, fear is a valid motivator, not just in the Bible, but in human experience, which is why we don't play volleyball on, um, on Interstate 80. 
Nobody's going to play volleyball on Interstate 80. You'll get killed. Or why I don't go into my electrical panel and start pulling out wires. I'd kill myself. That fear is healthy. And here he's saying, listen, this is where this goes if you just go headlong in this direction. Constantly living outside the fences in both heart and body. And yet that's precisely what our, our culture is saying. The voice is saying exactly the opposite that Jesus says here. It's like, listen, if, if, if that's how you feel and that's what you're attracted to and, and that's your direction of affection, then be yourself. Go. Do it. Live outside the fences. Be you. That's who you really are. That's, that's the voice of this world. Now, imagine if we took that same approach to other impulses. A shoplifter has an impulse to just grab stuff off the shelf, hide it in their coat, and walk out the door. You know, this impulse, this desire for more stuff. In what world would we say, you know what? That impulse, that's you. Just, just go ahead. Just be yourself. Shoplift to your heart's content. We wouldn't say that because it'll land somebody in prison. And it will twist their soul the longer they do it. Or we talked about anger two weeks ago. Well, you know what? You're kind of an angry person. It's, it's who you are at the core. So if, if that's how you want to be as angry, just, just let it go and verbally abuse your wife and kids. It's like, no, nobody would say that because it damages marriages and kids and grandkids. No, we wouldn't say that. Say so like, no, you need self-control, not just let it go. Or somebody who wants to drive really fast, that, that's what they want to do, 100 miles an hour all the time. It's just fast and furious. That's, that's my heart. I want to drive fast and furious. Can you imagine in what world we'd say, oh, that's who you are. You like to drive fast and furious. Just pedal the metal, baby. Be yourself. We wouldn't say that because he'd kill himself or, or somebody else. So why would we think with sexuality, something so core and so powerful, would we say, just, just go ahead, just Launch out, be yourself, and do whatever you want. Jesus is saying, it, it ends with like a head-on collision. Why would you do that? Why would we encourage that? Now, to be fair, someone would say, wait a second, Dan, I object. Fallacious reasoning. The three examples you just gave are examples in which people get hurt or hurt other people. What's the problem or what's the harm in two consenting adults engaging in this kind of free activity? If it doesn't hurt anything, what's the problem? Which we'd have to turn around and ask the question, but does it really not hurt them? Sin, as I understand it, is intrinsically corrosive. The idea of guilt and shame. Because every single human being has a conscience. And every single human being knows right from wrong inside. And they actually have to suppress it. And when they do that, it's like corrosion to the soul. So... I'm sorry, but it does hurt people. The very people that hopefully we love, not condemn, but love. Like, I don't want you to do this to yourself. The same way I wouldn't want my son or daughter to do it, or I wouldn't want that in my own soul. It does hurt. That's the big lie. It does hurt. So, one motivation, like this is where it ends, is, is it just... It twists your whole soul. 
Now, let me offer a positive one, the, the best one, the primary one. And that is, at the end of the day, we should want to live within the boundaries that God has set because of love. Now, let me pause and just explain that a little bit. Biblical love, true love, covenant love are all by very nature self-limiting. When we choose to really love somebody, we impose willingly and joyfully our own fences. When my father proposed to my mother 60 years ago, this year they're celebrating 60 years of marriage, which is amazing, like a miracle these days, right? And they stood before the preacher, and my dad said, I do. What he was doing is he was, he was vowing to live within a framework, a fence, right? He was, instead of being a tumbleweed that can go here or there, do whatever he wants, he'd say, now I am living within the confines of, of a marriage with a wife that I need to now love and serve and take care of. He chose to live within that fence. He also basically said, no others, dating is over, availability, done, no more vacancy, I have one person in my life. That's a serious, like, narrowing of fencing. Now, would you say, or would my father say, ever since I said I do, it feels so oppressed. I have to suppress my freedom in my marriage. It's like, no, he, he said I do and made that vow to live within the fence because he loves my mom. It's not an, action, an issue of suppression. It's a simple issue of he loves her. I realize not every marriage is like that, but maybe some feel oppressive, but that's not the way God designed it. That is, it's love by very nature, if it's true, like limits itself. Fences. We do it with our children too, right? Remember being young couple, we could go wherever we want and get in a car and go to Virginia and camp all over the place. And, you know, you could spend time restoring a car or sewing or, you know, gallivanting all over the country. And once you have kids, it's like you choose to live within an even narrower framework, right? Instead of restoring the car, what are you doing? You're baking out into the hot sun watching a three-hour baseball game, right? Or getting up super early, 7.30, going out to Octofield when it's 32 degrees, that's what you're doing, right? Now, as a parent, those of you who have done that, would you say, man, I feel like I'm just suppressing my freedom. It's like, no, I love my children. You love your children and you do it out of joy and love. You willingly impose restrictions upon yourself. That's what love does. Right? You see it? That's why it's love that has to motivate the, the disciples' obedience. Obedience, or let's take it one step further, and this is, this is the kicker. Let's just think for a second about Jesus. He was the second, is the second member of the Trinity, fully divine, the Son of God. He exercised the full freedom of what it means to be God. 